Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. It's summertime. Things are good. It's 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 good to be back. I always take January off uh, to sort of recharge the batteries for anybody listening overseas. January, you wipe it out here in Australia. The weather gets hot. Holiday time. Uh, people are some people are back at work. Some people aren't back at work. But now it's February. It's time to get down to business, including the Flat Out RC podcast. We have a good episode. Uh, a guy that I've been trying to get on for a little while, but the moon's aligned. We got him on, Phil Spence. Uh, You'll find out more about Phil, but he's involved in the uh, the pattern aerobatic scene, but he's he's been flying all sorts of things over many years. So we'll be having a chat with Phil. But before we get into that, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. As I was saying, it's summertime here in uh, Melbourne. And I'll tell you what, it's been an interesting sort of past three months from a weather perspective. And of course, we are involved in a hobby that involves the weather and uh, if you're like me and can only get out flying on weekends due to work commitments, etc., cetera, uh, we've been pretty limited as to our opportunities to go fly, I believe, where I am, that is, in Melbourne. And, uh, you know, this weekend it was flyable, it was good conditions, but um, it was really hot. But I think that's because we're soft down here in Melbourne. If you live in sort of the northern part of Australia or central Australia, you are used to getting hot and flying in the heat. And, uh, but down here in Melbourne, it gets to close to 30 degrees, that's Celsius, and uh, we pack up and, and go home because we don't want to stay out in the sun. I, I am finding the sun is really strong. You know, when I was a child, never put sun cream on. I'd, I'd go really dark. I really would tan up over summer. But now I'll just burn. Uh, within five minutes, I can get the burn happening. So you got to, as we say, slip, slop and slap, put the sun cream on put a hat on, but even then, it, sometimes it gets a bit too hot to be out the flying field. I did ha- I did do a little bit of flying over my uh, holiday break, which was good uh, down at the um, Ballerine Peninsula down here. I remember of a club down there. Did a little bit of flying, flew the E-Flight Draco. Uh, I've got it on the market, actually. I'm selling it because I've realised I just don't need another stole plane. So I do have an E-Flight Draco in the market. Get onto RC Trader and you'll You'll see a Draco there. That's that's my one. It's done four flights. It's in brand new condition. Uh, but anyway, take a look at the ad if you're interested. Uh, tried to fly my glider, my F5J glider. Um, and this is really embarrassing for me, but I'm an open book and uh, people can laugh and make comments, but uh, if they want and laugh at my own expense, it's okay. But I launched the glider into my head. These F5J gliders, four meter wingspan, the fuselage is massive. Don't know exactly the dimensions, but it's really long. So the tail's really far back, went to launch it and hit the back of my head and cracked the, f- the carbon fibre in the rear. Uh, anyway, learnt from my lesson. It was my fault. I didn't think before I threw the plane. Uh, and so I'm paying the price, but no problems. Um, it is being fixed. Currently in the process of being fixed. Uh, someone's doing it for me. Um, need a new fuselage, basically. Expensive mistake. But I will learn from that mistake and I will improve and I really want to get that glider going and have a crack at some of the F5J comps. So that is something that's on my agenda for 2022. Now, that brings me to something that I want to talk about. 2022, a brand new year. And often we talk about New Year's resolutions. And I was thinking earlier, what would I hope to see happen in the hobby down here in Australia in 2022? Well, there's a couple of things. 
First one being, I'd love to see the return of events. We're, you know, we're still in the midst of the COVID uh, pandemic. Plenty of people that I know have, have got COVID and overcome it. This new Omicron strain doesn't seem to be as strong, but, uh, but it's still around, but we've eased our approach towards it here in Australia, which means I think flying events will happen. Uh, so I'm hoping that we'll see the return of the jet events, the shepherd and mammoth flying, the, 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 the fun flies that different clubs uh, hold that I used to enjoy going to. I hope they'll be back. Really, really looking forward to that. Uh, looking forward to getting back and flying a bit more, hopefully being pretty busy with a lot of other things and uh, that kind of thing, which has prevented me from flying. So personally, I hope I get to do some more flying. But thirdly, there's one other area uh, that I, I want to start raising the concerns about, um, and that is the state of our hobby, the participation rates and all that kind of stuff. And it's a very, very challenging topic and it's very, very hard to change the course of society to try to get more people in there. But uh, I've always uh, talked about um, what I believe needs to happen in the hobby, and that is it's a very visual thing. Most of us got into, involved in the hobby by seeing it. So I'd love the hobby put in front of eyeballs. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we need another Facebook group. That's preaching to the converted. We don't need another podcast. Even this podcast preaches to the converted. We've got plenty of content for the converted, those that are actively involved in aeromodeling. We just don't have a lot of new people coming in. And the MAAA did a survey down here in Australia. They're yet to um, share those findings. But uh, one of the concerning things is that I see is the um, ageing demographic in the hobby and the lack of new blood coming in. Whether that be young kids or middle-aged men or women, it doesn't matter. There's just not a lot of people that are coming into the hobby and we're seeing a decline in the numbers. That will, if we extrapolate that out, if, if the trend continues, um, we're already starting to see the lack of hobby sto- stores around, say, where I live in Melbourne. We're really struggling with, with hobby shops. There aren't many here. And that is really in response to the market, the declining market. There's just not a viable proposition. So we're bu- buying more and more online if you're a true aero modeler. Um, there are still some some businesses going, but they're, they're pretty small concerns and um, maybe a bit limited in what they can access or, or want to offer because there's just the market not there. Um, so what I'm hoping is that two things, flying associations and the industry start to look after their interests better through the promotion of the hobby to a new audience. And I will give my tips. I'm a marketing guy. I run a marketing business. And I've already told the MAAA this in a, in a proposal that I gave them and, and shared that and very open about it. Go and advertise the hobby to a new audience utilizing Facebook and social media platforms because it's cheap. It reaches a lot of people. Who are we going to advertise to? I'm giving away all my secrets here, but I don't care. I just want someone to do it. We're going to advertise to people that are interested in cars, boats, fishing, uh, sport, sporting shooters, uh, uh, V8 supercars, motorsport, all those people that we know that have got a very inquisitive mind that don't mind spending some time, in, you know, investing some time to get to a point. Now, if you want to go fishing, you've got to make sure you've got the right rods, the baits, the lures, the lines. Um, you've got to think about where you're going to go fishing and what time of day, what time of year, what bait you're going to use. If you have got a boat, you've got to make sure your battery's charged, etc. You get the drift. There's a lot of activity that's needed just to partake in the act of fishing, and it's very similar with aero modeling, maybe in some ways a bit easier. 
And so um, we all of us listening know how great the hobby is, so we don't have to preach to the converted. But presenting it to a new audience, I think, is what is needed. And come try days, clubs, start running come, come try days. And what you do is you say, we're going to run a come try day and we're going to advertise it in the local newspaper, on Facebook. You can go onto Facebook. And if, any, if anybody's out there that doesn't know how to do this, send me a message. Uh, get on the Flat Out RC website, flatoutrc.com.au. Send me a message and I'll tell you how to do this. But you get onto Facebook and you can run an ad for your club and they'll come try a day. And you can pick the area. So say you're up in Echuca, up in the country, Victoria, down here. And you uh, want to run a come try day. You get into Facebook and you say, you create your little ad, your flyer, and you say, come try day, register now, sign up, and uh, you'll have a flyer of a radio control plane. And then you can actually um, advertise to the local area. You don't have to advertise to all of Australia. It's a great thing about these platforms. So all the mechanisms are there to allow us to promote the hobby. So advertise, what do you advertise? Uh, the hobby, like get involved, you can do that through videos. Then you can run ads against the Come Try Day, close that loop, get them to the field, give them an experience. Uh, and uh, sure enough, you'll have people going, this is great, I want to get involved in this. And remember, we're not trying to convert the world. If we get an extra 100 pilots in the next year, we'd be doing well. Uh, but so one of my hopes is in 2022, the industry, the associations get their acting to gear and realize something has to happen. And what that needs to happen is getting a new audience through advertising. So that's what I'm going to keep on harping on because I think that uh, they're the powers that, they're the people with the power that can actually enact that. Uh, it's going to involve a little bit of money. But as I said, you might spend $100 on a come try day to advertise it. It's all you need. Hundred bucks, run it for about two weeks, and uh, it's not going to be a lot of money. And I'm sure if you ask nicely, you might even be able to get a grant from somebody to do it. Whether it be your local council, uh, the MAAA, or its uh, chapters may even help you in supporting the promotion of the hobby through Come Try Day. So we can all play our part, uh, but let's get the guys at the top to start pushing things out. Let's keep on moving. Time for our special guest. Uh, our guest this week is a man by the name of Phil Spence. Uh, I was Facebook friends with Phil. Uh, and, um, you know, as you do with Facebook friends, with people that you've never met before, but you're connected through things such as zero modeling, you, you see what they're up to. And, and, and Phil's my kind of guy. He just went on a big motorcycle trip. I thought that was wonderful. I'd love to do that. But anyway, uh, got Phil on the line, had a great chat. Yeah, Phil has been flying for a long time. Uh, I think he started way back in the 70s, I think, and uh, found a passion for flying aerobatics and pattern especially, and he's been uh, quite involved in that scene. Uh, comes from Canberra, but travels around to different events. So Phil Spence, let's just let him tell you his story. It's all about telling the story. So uh, over to my chat with Phil. I think this is a world first for the Flat Out RC podcast. It's our first guest from Canberra, Phil Spence. Thanks for joining me. Good evening, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I'm sitting here in a balmy Melbourne. It's it's our first first interview for 2022. It's summer down here. It's really hot, about 33 degrees. What's it like up in Canberra? Uh, peaked out today at 29 degrees on the flying field, um, and was it quite humid actually? 
uh, threw a lot of water down the throat as opposed to other beverages. Yeah. Um, and it's now pretty humid, which is, for January, is a bit unusual for us, but we'll soldier on. Yeah, we're getting similar humidity. You know what's funny? I was talking to a, a friend the other day about um, the temperatures in which we go flying, and, and I said, oh, why aren't you going flying today? He goes, oh, it's too hot. I said, this is normal weather for Queenslanders. What do you think they're doing? What's your limit when it comes to temperature? <clears throat> well, I used to live in the UAE, um, and in those days I was fit. And uh, bike riding and uh, swimming and running and doing all that sort of stuff. I only left in 2015, so I think the 30 kilos came after that. <laughs> um, but I would bike ride up to 45 degrees. Um, and as long as you had plenty of water and you were watching your heart rate monitors and all that sort of stuff. But flying, I was at Yarra Valley last weekend and it was uh, pretty warm down. I think we had 34 on the practice day and you couldn't drink enough water. So uh, old age is catching up with me. Well, I went to a, an, an event in China in about 2017 and it was so hot. And an asphalt runway as well. So it's like wow. standing in a car park and the heat just radiated off. But luckily what they did is they got us there early. They'd have a bit of a session in the morning. In the middle of the day, they'd rush us off to a restaurant, um, air-conditioned restaurant, and then bring us back at about 4 o'clock to finish off the day. Um, but, oh, yeah, I'll tell you what, I, I, never, I never wanted to have a shower so much as after that event. You know, each day it was just sticky as anything. I hope you had a few sing towels to keep you hydrated. Uh, look, I think it was at the end of the day, yes. But, you know, <laughs> being a fine specimen of an athlete I am, I think it was – well, actually, I can't remember because they used to take us out for lunch and I can't remember they go, we had a few beers or whatever. But anyway, it was pretty memorable. As I was saying off air, I think I've got dementia since uh, since um, the start of the year, so I'm, I'm struggling to remember everything. But anyway um, – Let's get into it. How did you get started in model flying? Because you, you, you've been around it a fair bit. Um, I was 11 when my parents bought me a Cox PT-19 for Christmas. Yeah. Um, and there was no one else that was flying in my family. I'd always loved aeroplanes and still do anything to do with flying. Um, of course, there was no one to teach me to fly the PT-19, so there were broken wings and broken fuselages and... And God knows the parents stuck with it. And um, I eventually taught myself to fly the PT-19, then got onto the Aeroflight kits, you know, the uh, the Mustang trainer with a Cox uh, 09 motor, the Medallion 09 motor, which I still have. I still have the 049 motor and the oh, 09 really? motor. The, uh, yeah, they've certainly done some miles. So that was how it started, all with, uh, with the control line. And that was the case until even after I was married, I was still flying control line, not at any club or anything like that, just because I loved it. What, what year was this? What year did you get started? Just put some, some time into well, it. Well, let me see. Uh, born in 58, it would have been 1969 was when I had the Cox PT-19. See, those Cox PT-19s, they were they must have sold thousands of them around the world. I would have thought they'd sold tens of thousands of them. And interestingly, now they're worth a bloody fortune. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As we get nostalgic as, and get older, um, I traced one complete package down in the United States. Uh, and I bought it last year and it's sitting up on my wall and I look at it every now and again and just smile uh, because probably without that we mightn't be where we are now. That's true. I, I remember walking into hobby stores and there was always one of them and it looked like it had been sitting there for a while but there was always one PT-19. Um, well, Myers there. sold them you know, back in the old days, McEwen's and Walton's, they all sold yeah. them. You know, uh, there, there was lots of them around and then there was the Stuka and there were all sorts of other uh, Cox versions the PT-19. Even my mate I was flying with today, he started with the Cox PT-19. Yeah, see, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing that uh, when you talk to anybody of, say, your generation's gone to the hobby, 90% of them have come through 
control line, some oh, through absolutely. free flight, but um, but generally, yeah, that control line kind of thing. So, where 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 were you? Where did you live when you were a kid? Born, bred, and raised in South Caulfield in, in Melbourne. Oh yeah. Um, okay. So the hobby hangar was the the local haunt that we all used to hang around. Tony Chincotta. Um, Tony Chincotta. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm not far from there now. I can get there in about ten minutes, I reckon. Fair income. So where are you? I'm in East Bentley. Well, there so you go. Go along. Uh, I was on off uh, North Road. Yep. Up yep. Boran Road. Yep. And that's me. And you'd be off somewhere off uh, North Road. Um. Yeah. Well, off East Boundary Road. So yeah, up that way. But um. So so you were flying. Where were you flying the PT nineteen? Um. At the Caulfield South uh, School Grounds. There was a grass area there where the old tip had been grown over. Yeah. And uh, I flew there and for. I didn't ever notice until I went back years later and uh, looked up and there were power lines running right across it. And I, d- I don't recall ever seeing them as a kid, so God knows how I survived. <laughs> Maybe they weren't there. <laughs> they, and, and so, okay, so, you, and, so you're flying this control line. Were you going down to the hobby, hobby hangar there in, um, in Caulfield, across the road from the Caulfield Racecourse there? All the time. Um, because I went to Caulfield High, which was the other side of the racecourse. And certainly once a month, I'd go across there and look at what, uh, you know, diamonds were sitting up there that I'd hoped to buy. Um, and after my Cox motors, I moved on to those wonderful, consistent and reliable Fox motors. Yeah. <laughs> now, I think it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. What, but what were, you putting, what were you putting those motors in? Still, still control line? Yeah, it was, it was uh, all of the models that uh, Aeroflight made. Um, I think I built all of their 09 size models. Uh, and then moved up to the 35 sides. I think there was an Avenger and a Cobra or something or other like that. And there was also a flying wing and uh, the flying wings. I had the 09 size flying wing and then the 35 size uh, flying wing. And uh, I love those. And uh, my poor sister had to launch them for me so she'd get covered in oil and crap. And uh, <laughs> she'd get way betide if she didn't launch it properly. But to be fair, the family were bloody great because I was a bloody monster. Things didn't go right, I'd throw a tantrum. But we had a lot of fun over at Ormond Park. We also flew over at Ormond Park. And did anybody, whilst you're out there, going around in circles, were there other kids watching going, oh, I really want one of those, and anyone sort of ended up coming to join you, or it's still solo sessions? Well, they were solo sessions, so I taught myself. Uh, but there was another group that flew, and I knew them from school, the Wilson family, but they flew those smelly diesel things. And we, just, we didn't have any interaction at all. We'd talk at school, not about flying. Um, but they'd fly the same time I flew, you know, on a different part of the ground. And we just never talked about flying. I, I can't tell you why, just the way it was. Yeah. That would have been good times, though. Like, do you look back fondly at those days? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I still love everything to do with aeromodelling. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go on, I'll hear, not so often these days you hear anyone in the park, but, you know, even when, when I was growing up with young kids, you hear someone flying in the park. I'd go down and have a look because I just, I just love everything about aeromodelling. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful pastime. Yeah, you know what? I think, I think a lot of a lot of us have got that that same thing in common. That um, you know, if if I I remember as a, as a child, if we were travelling somewhere as a family in the car, you know, going for the, you know the drive. Remember we used to go for drives. You know, come on, kids, we're yep. going for a drive, and you'd see someone flying a glide or something like that. It was like we got to stop. We have to stop. I've got to see this. This is just unbelievable. And I was actually thinking about this the other day. Is my fascination with radio control has been there from a very young age. I remember having a remote control car. Well, had these cars where they they would 
you had this control that was like a clicker and it'd make a noise, clicking noise, and it would, you know, turn the turn the uh turn the the, the little car. And I remember from that age, and I would have, this would have been the 70s or something, that I was just intrigued with that with that kind of thing. I just it's I think it's ingrained in in a lot of us. But um okay, so you're out there with the control lines and that kind of stuff. Now, always interested to know. How did you make that shift? Like, okay, so you you, you school years through through um, control line, but then how did that progress into radio control? Well, I continued to fly control line even after I came to Canberra because I joined the uh, started with the Commonwealth Police and then the Federal Police in Canberra, and I was flying control line even after I got married because we didn't have any money, um, so yeah, I could afford to get some bolster and build my own planes, and I, I designed uh, a twin engined. Um, control line model that had twin Fox 25s on it and getting them both to run at the same time was interesting because it happened (laughs) occasionally. Um, And so I flew control line until 1984. Um, I was, uh, I got a good punch in the mouth and had some teeth broken when I was at work. And in the old (laughs) days we had a, had a criminal injuries compensation system. And I got an, I got an award of $800 for my three broken teeth. And it was with that, I bought a JR radio. Uh, and it was six channel, if you don't mind. Gee, and I, I think it consumed most of the uh, of the payout. And I also got a Hustler Aeroflight, yeah, of course, the Aileron Hustler. I went the full hog and got Ooh. the Aileron Hustler, and that was the beginning of radio control. So a punch in the face <laughs> led to you getting into radio control. Yeah, punch in the face and visit to the doctor in a few days in the dentist chair, yeah. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of error modelers that would line up for that punch to be able to buy some gear. There's plenty of error modelers that line up probably to give me the punch. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that, but anyway. Oh, I know look, a few. I know a few that probably want to line me up as well. I don't know why. I'm a nice guy. We're nice people. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so, okay, so you get this uh, this JR radio, which would have been swanky for the day, and then... Uh, and then, of course, the trusty old Aeroflight, which was like, you know, for anyone listening overseas, Aeroflight was a brand of uh, of balsa kits uh, that that came out of Australia. And basically, if you were into aero modelling in Australia, you probably had an Aeroflight kit at some point in time. It was uh, my first model was that I built was an Aero. Oh, actually, it was given to me as a present the Aeroflight Nomad Free Flight Glider, which my dad. Oh yeah, that's all. I've actually I've started in the last ten years. Since I've been back into flying, not even that long. Anyway, in the last few years, uh, collecting Aeroflight kits. So I've got about 45 of them now. Oh, really? Well, yep. you're doing well. I just bought um, from, um, uh, what's it called? Um, RC Trader. No. Oh, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. Um, I bought a um, Scale Aero, Aerosport. Is it Scale Aero? I, they were, I helped them out. Um, Peter Goff, Scalera products. Sorry, Peter. Yeah. Um, Scalera, <laughs> products. Peter Goff up there. Um, I just got a Aries glider from him because he's he's reproducing. The, and uh, the so kit. did I. And and well done. And and you know what? I did an Instagram post saying that uh, showing a, a one that I built in about 1995 with a broken tail. And said, uh, last one was built in 1995. The next one should be built by 2045, knowing my <laughs> ability. But I had to buy one because uh, that nostalgic sort of thing. And, I, you know, it, yeah. it, just having it there, even unmade, makes me happy. When it arrived, I went, oh, what's this? Oh, that's my Aries. Awesome. And um, 
So exactly the same. I've got most of their uh, control on it. There's two of the. 09 size I don't have that I'm hanging out for, but uh, I'll keep sniffing away. I remember a, a mate of mine, um, his dad was into control line when he was a kid, and this would have been in the late 80s. His dad decided to build another Aeroflight kit, and he, he built the one that's got the – it's like looks a bit like a jet and had the twin twin um, uh, rudders on it kind of thing in the rear. But oh, he, cool. I can't remember. What, I saw one the other day come up on Facebook. Anyway, he um, he fiberglassed the whole thing, right? Cool. Yeah, it looked great, but guess what? When he went to fly it, it was like well, a she rock. Was, she <laughs> was, yeah, God. yeah, it was just way we're not, too. We're not all Peter Goldsmith that can uh, come up with about two answers on uh, for all the fiberglass. Yeah, yeah, true, true. I don't, I don't know how he, how he does it at all. I just he's unbelievable. I don't have that that kind of uh, that level of skill. But anyway, Scalera products, uh, scalerraproducts.com.au. Um, I should remember it, but as I said, my brain's gone. My, my brain's fried since Christmas. Uh, okay, so you buy the Hustler, you buy the radio control. I've, I've got an image of what might have happened, but what, what happened once you, you built all that? Well, I was telling someone just the other day, I took it out to the Canberra um, CMAC, Canberra Model Aeronautical Aeroplane Society Club, uh, wasn't a member, and flew it there because I couldn't get anyone to fly it for me. I'm going to sound like a dick, but I actually got it up and down in one piece. It didn't continue that way, but on my first flight, I got it up and down in one piece. See that—that's amazing because uh, so many stories I hear where, that I've, you know, people that I've interviewed said, "Yeah, the first flight ended up in a crash." But w- why do you think you got it up and back in one piece? I was aeroplane nuts. Um, everything to do with aeroplane, I was keen on, uh, and I was—I suppose I was a played a lot of sports, so I was reasonably coordinated. Um, now, to tell you that the rest of them followed and it was just an easy step up to aerobatics is, would be a complete and total lie. Um, I then proceeded to break the Hustler, uh, put the fuselage back together, but the wing was totaled. And I then had a precedent high boy. And I totaled the uh, high boy except for the wing. So the precedent high boy wing went on top of the high, uh, Hustler fuselage, and that's what I learned to fly with. So you, you're flying around, and um, what were you thinking? What were you? How were you progressing? <laughs> Pretty slowly. Um, I wasn't making a great deal of progress. I was having the sportsman um, sorts of planes, uh, always up engine, engine up, putting up engines on them. So if they were forty size, they probably had a sixty on it. Um, there was, I was trying to think that the other day, there was a uh, Aeroflight um, sort of 40 size sports aircraft. Uh, and that was obviously designed for 40. I don't know where 60 on the front of that. And I found looping that around a soccer goalpost was really good until you misjudged and you hit the post. <laughs> uh, and that didn't work out too well. So it was all that sort of stupid rat baggy stuff. And it was just a bit of flying at the club. Um, and then I got on to a Quickie 500. Oh, I remember them, yeah. Oh. Uh, with a Fox Q500 racing motor. And they are a bitch of a thing. I've got about 10 of them, and two of them are absolute screamers, and the other ones would make good fishing anchors. Um, but they, when you get them sorted, they go like the absolute clappers. Hmm. And uh, the Quickie 500s went like a freight train. Uh, and provided you had your CG all right, you could tumble them all over the sky. And 
that was the first time I started trying to look at doing anything that was towards a sensible aerobatic manoeuvre, mind you, at breakneck speed, probably 240, 260Ks. Hmm. <laughs> well, that's... Um... It's funny though because remember pattern flying back in the day was done at a lot of speed. Now it's a lot, it's much slower. So then, okay, so you so it sounds like you're flying a lot of different sport models and that kind of stuff. Yes, I was. Yep. Then what next? What comes after the sport models? So I know where you're at now, and so did you keep on refining the models that you were flying, or you know? Yeah, no, I just sort of I just sort of mungled around for quite some years. That in 1991, the World Championships in Australia, and um. Uh, three of my mates tonight, because we're all coppers, uh, went to the World Championships, and we did security on the night time at uh, Dre's Airworld in Wangaratta. Oh, yeah. So we'd, we'd sort of show up at 11 o'clock, um, bunker down, and do the security there till 6 o'clock, and then we'd bugger off and then come back for the day's flying. Uh, and that's how we got free tickets, because, you know, I was a young bloke. Well, not so young, but I had kids and all that sort of stuff. Um, so money was very tight. And watching the, the best of the world at Wangaratta, that was the hook. And from that day on, I've been hooked in aerobatics. I remember Chip High doing his, uh, after he won, doing his show-off flight at the end, flying on knife edge down the strip, waving to people, using rocking his rudder at, at bee's dick yeah. off the ground. And I just thought that's one of the most spectacular things I'd ever seen. Now, the true aerobatic blokes would say, well, it's actually not that hard to do, but it certainly captivated me and that was the beginning of flying uh pattern yeah see see again i love doing this podcast because it's almost like a study in in psychology and understanding how people get into the hobby and that kind of stuff you know really understanding the demographic and a recurring thing is a lot of people start doing something after seeing something Right, so for yeah. example, you saw uh, Chip Hyde, and you saw that and thought, "I want to do that." And then you you fall in love with that idea, and then you you start going down that sort of the route. I did the same with when I saw Ido Segev fly three D. Yeah, well. Went, oh my god, I want to do that. Okay, I'm never going to be able to at that level, but I it's something that resonated inside of me to say that's my direction. So was it at that point that you found your direction in the hobby? Yeah, absolutely. And it's been, other than having had the break because I was posted overseas and all that sort of stuff and family, uh, it's been an overriding passion. Um, I went into it very big in the 90s. Uh, Then in 97, I got posted to Christmas Island for three years, even took an aerobatic plane with me there, came back and did a little bit, but then I was getting posted overseas consistently. So I've only come back um, to flying competition in the uh, the last four years. Yeah, so you're retired now? Absolutely, and loving every second of oh, it. Oh, don't rub it in. I was talking to Jeez, someone today mate. about I can't wait to be retired. Absolutely, it's the business. Yeah. yeah don't no. leave it too late. Don't do like too many people. The cemetery is full of indispensable people. I know. Tell me about it. I, I um, These people that want to work at the age of 80. Oh, Madness. But oh, they get addicted to it and they've got nothing else to do. But we aero models, mm. we've got something to do, haven't we, Phil? We've always got aero modelling to fall back on. Absolutely, it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. It really it gives you quite a direction, and I'm I'm thankful for that. Yeah. So okay. So let's go back to you see Chip Hyde. I'm trying I'm trying to get in contact with Chip to come on the podcast because I'd love to talk talk to him. But 
Um, so yeah, he's lived a life that fellow. Oh, like we do, and I'd love to have him to talk about that life. But <laughs> but um, Chip, um, you see Chip, and and he influenced a lot of people. Really, he's a big name. Really, when you think about that '90s period into the the 2000s, you know, Chip Hyde was just the gun. You then do what? Go and buy another model, any bet. Yeah, I started looking at getting um, something that was more of the precision aircraft type. Well, actually, I had to build them because I didn't have any money to bloody buy the, the stuff that I needed. Um, and I was a terrible builder. I'm, I'm worse now, but I was a terrible builder even those days. Um, and then I think I entered the – I think the Wangaratta Nationals were – I think it was Nationals at Wangaratta in 92. And I entered a um, – oh, some 60-size thing with a Fox Eagle 60 on the front of it. It was as temperamental as most other Foxes. Um, it was my first ever competition. I slept in the back of the car. Um, and didn't do any good at all, of course, but loved every minute of it. And the people were very welcoming. And uh, I remember that they were looking at this poor bugger sleeping in his car at the field, and um, they couldn't have been they couldn't have been kinder or nicer. And that was it. The hooks were in. Well, then by the time I'd swallowed the next lot, it was a set of gang hooks down this road. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely like that, though, isn't it? When you turn up and you're a newcomer, I find that. Um you know, most of uh, the aero modelling community is very forthcoming in helping out. They love to see someone that, you know, needs a helping hand and wants to get yeah. into something as enthusiastic. So um, that is a big positive in our hobby. So uh, did you – where were you flying? Like, what, which, which, I was in Canberra. Still so in Canberra? Posted, uh, yeah, Canberra Model Aeroplane Club. Um, and so I, I think I flew my first comp- proper competition probably in 93. Um, and because I've done a lot of flying – I found that the progression through actually went reasonably quickly. Um, so in 93, I think I was out of sportsman into advanced. Um, and then in 94, I got posted to go overseas to, to work with the United Nations in Mozambique. Um, so I did a couple of comps at the beginning of the year. I did my seven months in Mozambique and then I came back and I was flying, um, flying again. And I think I was expert, went into expert at the end of 94, 95. And then I won expert at the Masters in 95. I was in the Trans-Tasman team in 96 and flew in, in the first KAOC, uh, Combined Asian Oceanic Championships, which is now the AOC. And uh, that was my first. So the Trans-Tasman and, my, and the KAOC were my first international teams in 96. Okay, so you progressed pretty quickly. Yeah, but I had, I had very good coaches. Um, I mentioned Peter Goldsmith before. Uh, to my opinion, still the best uh, pilot we ever produced. Have you had him on one of these? Oh, I've had him a couple of times. Should go back and listen. Yeah. Sorry, mate, I'm a bloody slacker. Oh, gee, you know, do you know who you're talking to? Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> Peter. Uh, Peter. No, I've had Peter. Yeah, I've had Peter on twice. Once, um, just having a chat about his his history in flying, and, and the second to talk about um, trimming a model because you know he's got his famous yeah. Peter Goldsmith trimming chart, which was an excellent. Um, Excellent yep. episode. So um, I'll have him he back at some. He's got plenty of stories to tell. So I'll have him back another time. Well, he was um, Australia's highest placed at the FAA World Championships. He came fourth in the Tournament of Champions. I was there with him in 98 in oh, Las really? Vegas. Um, you know, he's won Top Gun. But he was my mentor. Many, many people would offer, devo- offer advice and say thank you and listen to all of them. But the one that I listened to assiduously was Peter. Uh, model setup, model trim, engine trim, all those sorts of things. And I tried to buy his, when he finished with the model, I would always try and buy his model um, 
as my next model. So when he sold the Lotus 5, I bought the Lotus 5. And when he sold his Carrera, I bought his Carrera. It was the Carrera that I used to fly in Kayok in uh, 96 at Wangaratta. So, so you really value that that ability to have a good, strong mentor then when it oh, comes mate, to aerobatics? Uh, absolutely. It's, I think I reckon it's critical. And uh, he was he was absolutely fantastic. It was very, uh, very, very giving. Um, Australian teams were very, you know, I suppose they're always tight, but they were they were very tight in those days. And particularly with the first uh, Kayok at Wangaratta, I think I think we had 17 countries compete um, and, and Australia won. And I remember, you know, I'm a pretty sort of patriotic sort of Australian who, who sort of thing. Um, and I remember singing the national anthem as the flags went. Oh, I had tears rolling down my face. Oh yeah, yeah, no. You know, it was uh, it was powerful stuff, and um, I've never forgotten it. And it's something that I'll treasure. It's just one of those things that your modelling gives you, and it's something you'll treasure forever. Well, it, you know, it's not often that uh, any of us get to represent our country in in, in a sporting endeavour. And you know, we are a sport. We're all athletes, Phil, because um, we are classified as a sport, but. Uh, I just look up to it. I've had, you know, a, a lot of people that have represented Australia on the podcast, Dennis Traveseros and you know, <laughs> David Law and, you know, uh, these kind of guys. And they all say the same thing. It's just a, it's just such a proud moment. And I, I just, I can imagine how proud you would be when oh. that anthem would come up or just even just walking out behind a flag to say, yep, I'm representing my country. And some people can look at it and go, oh, it's just their own modelling. But no, it's, it's, it's not easy to get onto a team. There's so many points that you that, that follow from that. In, I was lucky enough in 2019 to go to the World Championships with the current team. Yeah. Um, and you're walking out behind the flag was awesome. Let's go in '96, as you say, we are a sport, so we're actually covered by the Australian um, Sports Code. Um, so we can be drug tested and all those sorts of things. Not many people realise that when it comes to flying. Um, but through that, being in Canberra, I had a few contacts, and uh, our AOC team, KOC team. Uh, went to the Australian Institute of Sport in '96 because we were a designated, properly affiliated, all that listed Australian sports team representative yeah. team. That's right. And I remember we, we one of the sports shrinks spoke to us um, because you know do you get nerves? How do you cope with your nerves? All that sort of stuff. And one of the things they told us was that um, all top spe- all top sports people get nerves. Yeah, fair enough, makes complete sense. Um, said, but, you know, our sport, we shake and all that sort of stuff. I remember my area was shaking so much with the old 36 megs, they thought I had some Vitus dance. <laughs> and he was saying, um, the shrink was saying to us, um, really, it, everyone's going to get the nerves except that. But what you need to do is work out the reason you got there was because you were the best in your field or you were the rep- representative best that was available. And so to do justice to that, the big thing is to do the best that you possibly can to justify your selection, your skill and all that sort of stuff. And that actually hit a bit of a nerve and thought, well, I was good enough to get here. Would it be silly to be less than I was to get here? So let's try and be a bit better. Um, we were lucky, you know, we were all kitted out and all the Aussie gear and all that sort of stuff and we won. So you beauty. Yeah. Nah, I'm trying to get a... um. A sports psychologist onto the show. I sent an email to one the other day asking if they wanted to come on because I think there's so much psychology involved, especially when you're competing. But um, even at the the average punter that goes to the field and has to fly that turbine for the first time or a large <laughs> scale model that you know they know they spend a lot of time and money and investment into is that you know I, I always get fascinated. We can grab a foamy, throw it around the sky, and bring it back in one piece. But then we go and get a hundred cc get that off and we're at 300 feet trying to, you know, be four, four crashes high just in case. But 
it's the same thing. Yes, there's subtle differences, of course, in the, between the models, but the skill is still there. If you can throw the foamy around a foot off the deck, well, you could you don't need to fly it at you know 300 feet and you with your 100 cc. But there's a, yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of psychology in it. So I hope if anybody knows a psychol- sports psychologist out there wants to come on the podcast, reach out to me through the Flat Out RC channels because. I want them on. I want to ask a whole bunch of questions that could help a lot of us. The AIS bloke would say that you've just got to be true to yourself. There's no sense to be walking away from here and thinking, oh, shit, I should have done this or I should have done that. No, do what you're capable of. You Display your skills while you got here. Um, and you see there's so much of that sports psychology now. Uh, but in those days, that was a that was absolutely unheard of in era modelling. Um, and we're sort of, you know, there was an announcement that went through across the, uh, at the AIS uh, cafeteria there that the Australian representative aerobatic team was here and they're all looking up gave us a round of applause and we're like oh for shit's sake you know <laughs> you know I fly I fly JR <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no no you're you're an Australian you're an Australian Olympian just you know it's <laughs> that that's what you're basically an Australian Olympian <laughs> now okay so you 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 said you had a break so you're going hell for leather flying aerobatics and that kind of thing and then what? Because you got posted overseas, it's that that brought that to an end. Yeah, I went to Christmas Island in '97, and uh, for 12 months, and it was finished up being a three-year posting. That's when all the illegal boats were coming in. Yeah. 29 boats in my three years, um, and Steve Coram was in Western Australia, so I took my AOC plane over to Christmas Island, which would have been the first uh, RC plane to fly on Christmas Island, and I could take methanol and cool power, but I couldn't take nitro. So Steve organised from Western Australia through some stevedores to send me some nitro. So I had fuel. So my idea was to go up and fly in Indonesia or Malaysia or Singapore or whatever. That didn't come to pass because we were just too bloody busy. So I think I only flew the plane half a dozen times when I was up in Christmas Island. Where were you flying it? Off the, off the airport? Or... Off, off the airport. <laughs> yeah. Christmas Island International Airport was uh, host to a career with a OS supercharged 120 in it. Yeah. Anybody listening overseas to get into Google now, type in Christmas Island, you'll see where it is. And uh, let's just say it's a, it's a, it's a pretty – it looks like a nice place, actually, Christmas Island. Stunning place. It's yeah. uh, the yeah. most – it is unique. It's got its own ecosystem. Um, I went from being totally indifferent to anything to do with wildlife and all those sorts of things to now I've got bird books in the house and I look at birds and I'm concerned about what happens in the environment because – Christmas Island, you know, it's it's got the crab migration, which people might yes, know about. Yes, know about the crabs. I was going to ask you about Literally that. billions of little crabs come back and invade everything in their path to uh, cyclones. And we had, of course, the boat people, which totally changed my understanding about just how much suffering there is in the world. And um, it's an, an amazing place, absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. How did it feel to sort of have that break from flying? Was it something that you you're too preoccupied with your work to worry about flying or were you missing it? Yeah, that's it. That's it, Andrew. I was, t- I was uh, very busy um, and it was just something that sort of um, went away. Um, when I came back after leaving Christmas Island, we left on uh, 31st of December 1999, went via Indonesia to come home and then we the plane was cancelled, so we spent uh, the millennium in uh, Jakarta. We eventually got home, and I was very keen to get back into uh, aerobatics. I bought Alfred Pye's silhouette that he'd had at the World Champs. I've still got all of these planes. Pete Lotus, the Carrera, Alf Silhouette, I've still got all of them. 
Uh, and Mick Ryan's been very keen to get his hands on uh, Elf's uh, silhouette, but it's not for sale. Yeah, because it sounds, um, like, sounds like you're a hoarder, Phil. Oh, absolutely. I build a bloody something shed for my error modelling and it's overflowing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. See, you build a big shed and you and I always say, you've got plenty of room, you'll fill it with stuff. It's yeah, absolutely. Happens. And then I got back in. I was the team manager for the um, Trans-Tasman, I think, in 2000 or 2021. And I went to Solomon Islands in uh 2000 or 2001 then 2003 i went to east timor um and it just kept rolling on so i went to afghanistan for a year in 07 08 and then did two years in cyprus 2009 to 2011. in cyprus that's my uh i've got heritage in cyprus oh yes we're fairly thick on i am my mum's side of the family they're all uh they're cypriot greek cypriots i've been i've been to cyprus lovely place just a good place to be posted I was boss of the cops there, mate, for two years. Gee, you've lived a life. I'll tell you what, you would have seen a lot. I've been a very lucky fella. Yeah, that, it's it's like, you know, there wouldn't have been a dull moment in your life, I reckon, with all the work <laughs> and all the places you've been. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm struggling to keep track. I'm just trying to remember all of them. Mozambique was in there, Christmas Island. You yeah. mentioned to me UAE. You did a stint there. Afghan- 52 countries I've got my work passport. Oh, gee. Oh, well, you deserve the you earned the retirement. You earned the retirement. <laughs> uh, okay, so then, so was, was it really when you retired that you you really got back in at a at a high speed? Well, um, when I when I retired, I retired in two thousand eleven. So coming up to 11, 11 years ago, um, I was doing musical theatre, believe it or not, um, and that's completely different to area modelling. It's certainly completely different to policing, um, but it was it was awesome. It filled a a very important part because I've always been a muser. I played piano since I was 70 years of age, um, which I think actually helps with coordination for flying, but that's another story. Um, so I did musical theatre, but then I got the co- after I'd retired, I got the contract to go to the UAE. So I was the senior advisor for counterterrorism to the UAE. Oh, I see. Two and a half works, years. Works keeps on getting in the way. Interesting about the music thing that I, I there's so many era models. That, oh, I play guitar, played guitar since I was seven, but. There's so many era models out there that are into into music. I think we're we're all. Do you do you have trouble sitting still? <laughs> Not so much these days. I can put my fat bum down. In fact, if my bum gets any fatter, I'll have its own postcode. <laughs> but, um, um, used to always live on adrenaline. That, that certainly happened. Um, interesting. I think that people that with uh, with I think music um, works the brain very much like era modeling does. Um, because you've got to be alert, you've got to really be quick to respond to what's happening, and I think that it's mutually complementary. Mm. I think it's for me. I, I've, I've come to be quite aware of my brain, and I think that uh, I always need to be working on something, and I like the attainment of skill. I'm never into simple things. You know, there's people just into simple things, and I'm always into I'm always into complex things, which my wife thinks is crazy, but. Um, <laughs> Use it or lose it. That's the go. Um, I've got WMD, white matter disease. Yeah. So that means that um, I've got a lot of white blood, uh, white areas in my brain that are dead. Um, and as they gradually combine, it leaves you more predisposed to um, uh, Alzheimer's and all that sort of dementia. So error modelling actually helps that because your neuropathways are going to be working all the time. Um it means that you know, I could just fall off the cliff and suddenly been sucking my thumb or something like that. Um, but hopefully I'll be sucking on a 
good red wine or a nice musket or Carlton draft or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That is true. But air modeling really helps because you, you, I was out flying the new F schedule in uh, Patton today, and you really have to be working very hard and concentrating. It's a bloody bitch of a, it's a bitch of a schedule, but it's also wonderful because it's tough to learn. It was interesting. I was um, I was listening to a podcast uh, last weekend actually when I was on my way to the field, and it was a, um, a podcast called Gypsy Tales, and it's a guy that uh, interviews a lot of. Uh, motocross riders, supercross riders, but he had Dan Ricciardo, the for- Formula One driver, on. And, Holy cow! And he was, and it was, a, it's a big episode. I still haven't finished listening to it. It's like three or four hours of chat. But um, he was in quarantine in the hotel in WA, so he had plenty of time to spare to have a chat. But he, he, really interesting guy, Re- lovely. Like he, he's the kind of guy that you just want him to be in your friend group because he's just a nice bloke. Yeah. And anyway, he was talking about this um this almost silence in the mind when he's driving the Formula One car. And you said a Formula One weekend's really busy. But um, when you get in the car, it's like his own time. And and I I raced cars at one point in time. And I think I I, I was realising that when I – like if you're doing that pattern routine you're practising, there's nothing else in the world that you're thinking about except just flying that plane. And that's something that I crave where – because I've got a very, very active mind – is that silence in my head – where there is nothing else that I'm thinking about except for what I'm actually doing now. That's why we have callers, because you are so tunnel vision on that plane and exactly what it's doing. Even though you might have practised your schedule a thousand times, the you call still has to call your manoeuvres because you just don't have them. You don't have the schedule when you're not in that loose area. When you are really locked in in competition, you are just on that plane. So for the seven minutes that it takes you to fly, you are in the groove, hopefully, concentrating on that lump that's up in the air. Yeah. There's a guy, Paul Marlin, that I know, which, who you may have met over the years, but um, Paul Marlin used to fly Patton. He said to me once he was practising and he had an out-of-body experience. He said it was like, <laughs> he literally said he was watching himself fly the plane. He was concentrating that hard. I, I really? understand that. I haven't had that one. But what I do is if... You know, I'm, I'm not the greatest sleeper, so if I'm lying awake at, at night time, I fly schedules in my mind. I fly manoeuvres in my mind, look at corrections. Um, I've just been down for eight days in Victoria, practising down there with Russell Ed- Edwards and Arthur Rosiblu, and um, we were just doing this new F schedule, and it is really complex. You're swapping rudders, you're swapping elevators and airlines all the time through various manoeuvres, and I can do that in 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 my bed, some would say that's probably the sign of some ill-gotten activity in the past. Yeah, probably. Um, but I can do it inside my head, and it, it actually calms me. So maybe I'm totally nuts. No, I'm the same. Um, but I think that, that do you do you find that you're good at visualising things? Um, yes, I was trained as uh, as well as being a cop. I was a bomb technician. That's how the counterterrorism world. So you have to be very good at that visualisation stuff. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, over the Christmas break, I, I caught up with a friend, and he he said to me, "If I said to you, can you visualize sitting on a beach looking at a beautiful sunset? Could you could you put yourself in that moment?" I went, "100 percent. I've got a very very vivid imagination. That's my problem. That's why I want to have model airplanes and motorbikes. And my latest one is I want to stand up jet ski. You know, imagine what it'd be like riding this thing." He said, "I can't do that." I, he said, "I can see a picture really? of it." But I can't actually, and it's actually a, a condition where he says, I can't actually visualise what that situation is, but I can see a picture of it. 
That sucks. Yeah, yeah, I know. I said, well, that explains a lot. I've always thought you're a bit weird, but he, um, <laughs> but yeah, but it, but it's it is interesting, and uh, you know, I think it's a bit of a affliction though. If you've got that vivid imagination, we, we, we're never going to have money because we're just going to keep on spending it on bring the vision to life. But um, but I think I think even like what you're saying, visualizing the, the the sequence, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, when I well, actually I, I did that before I flew my turbine jet for the first time. I visualized that flight and I executed yeah. it against that vision. Um, you know, in yeah. my mind, I kept on running through it, and that that sort of you know, I wasn't I wasn't very nervous. I knew what I had to do because I it was so vivid in my memory, you know, in my mind as to what I needed to do. Yeah, I get it. I completely understand that. What's interesting is how far you travel to fly. Is that a recent <laughs> thing, or you've always had that in you to get in a car no. and drive for five or six hours to get somewhere to fly? I love driving. Um, it yeah, used to take me away from work. I could fly schedules when I was driving. Probably shouldn't have. Should have spent my time concentrating on the road, but was that was never a problem. Um, I've my car's just over two years old now, and even through COVID, it's now got eighty two thousand k's on it. Oh, really? And that's last year I flew in comps in South Australia, multiple comps in Victoria, multiple comps in New South Wales, and three times to Queensland. Well, you know, this is interesting. I've never asked this question before. What does your family think about your flying and that commitment you've got? Um, that's a good question. I'm, well, having done so many overseas postings, I've been away for sort of seven years in my uh, working life. Uh, my wife's father was a policeman, so she was used to him living with work and all that sort of stuff. Um you try and balance it up as much as you can. Um, but now with this WMD, I think my whole family sees it as being a good thing because it keeps the grey matter ticking over and not becoming white matter and the old mind falling off a cliff, I think. Yeah. Well, it's a really good point. I think that um, anybody that, you know, if someone sees a lot of value out of going flying and making that commitment, go for it if it makes you happy. Like I think that... There's a lot of retired people that just are unfulfilled. You know, they might have had a busy working life, but they've got nothing after it. And with aero modeling, you can pick and choose when you want to do it, where you want to do it. You can travel like you do. You don't need to travel. You can build if you want to build and not fly. You can do both, etc. Cetera, et cetera. There's so many choices, but I always say it keeps you mentally active, physically active, and socially Absolutely. active. Absolutely. And it is, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Awesome. You know, I've been lucky that my family's always supported uh I supported the hobby, so uh, you know I'm very lucky at that end. I did say to my parent, my mum, the other day. I said, "You didn't even buy me a model aeroplane when I was a kid. I had to buy my own." And anyway, um, but she, she knows what I'm like. But yeah, I've been fortunate. My 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 wife's been very supportive of every weird idea that I've had. She rolls her eyes, <laughs> and sometimes she says, "And how much was that?" And I say, "It was on well, sale." This old thing. This, yeah, this old thing. Where did the, I don't know where it came from. I can't remember. Had I've years. had it for years. Or well, someone had it for years. I bought them off it. <laughs> it's been around for years. But um, yeah. I actually. Well, I'm someone gonna... someone recently discussed with my wife. Um, you know, what do you think about him spending? You know, eleven thousand dollars on one of his planes. And the question came back: eleven thousand dollars. Yeah. It's not eleven thousand dollars. How many how many of those do you have? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's I, I was I literally today. I was at my podiatrist. I've got an Achilles. I've got Achilles tendonitis at the moment. Oh, so that's I was, a shit. I was getting some injections in, into my Achilles, and um, and he, he the, the the podiatrist is really into full full size flying. He's got a twin Comanche um plane that he's um recently bought, and he loves flying. We're having a chat about planes and stuff like that, and we were talking about aero modeling and, and and that kind of thing. And he's only working three days a week, and we're talking about retirement and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I said to him. I've come to the conclusion that I'm the kind of person that 
will probably at the point of retirement may not have a lot of money because there's so many things I need that I want to experience that I need to do now whilst I physically can. And because um, by the time I retire, I'll be flying model airplanes. I've already got my retirement hobbies sorted out. But there's other little things that revolve around physical activities that I've got to get out of the way now. So I said, that's where my money's going at the moment. Yes, I should be wise and I do put money away but um, and manage my finances carefully, but I still have to invest in in these experiences as I put them. Otherwise, I don't think my life's going to be fulfilled. I always say my, my tombstone is going to say he tried a lot of things. Well, I just had to edit out a little piece there because uh, Phil decided to go to the toilet. And whilst he was there, he was telling me about what he had to drink. And I said to him, have you met Fraser Briggs? And you said? One of my best mates in flying. Yeah, because you know it brought me back memories of talking to Fraser and um, drinking because uh, Fraser's been on the podcast <laughs> a couple of times. And uh, in, the, in the last episode, actually, just before Christmas, the Christmas episode, and and he always says to me, okay, wait a second, I've just got to go and get a beer and I'll be back with you. So, um, so yeah, I can see you and Fraser getting on really well. Hi, hi Fraser, I hope you're having a good good year. <laughs> There's a reason he's called Bogan. He's one of the funniest men that God ever put on the face. Oh, yeah, he's, he's um, podcast episodes. Uh, he, actually, the first podcast episode that I had him on is, is, is bolted as far as uh, listened. It's, it's like miles ahead of everybody else because everybody just enjoyed hearing his tales and you know what i've got to get him back on because it's about another 50 stories that he's got to tell and we've got actually we've got a, we've got a, we've got a notepad of notes of things of topics to cover and last time i had him on we only covered three out of about nine so <laughs> i said to him we'll have you again in a few months time we'll get you back on i met him in 1996 at the at my first trans tasman oh, he uh, young back then yeah him hamish uh, hamish galloway worms um Andrew Palmer, uh, Butler, Andrew Butler, and Adam Butler, and um, and we just hit it off. We had the best time at the Trans Tasman. It was here in Canberra. We actually had it fully sponsored by Holden back in those days. Oh, really? Um, and it was. We just had a great time. And when I went with uh, Goldie over, because I went from Christmas Island to Las Vegas for the TOC in '98, I spent more time with the Kiwis yeah, in the yeah. back of one of their trucks, driving around, sculling cans. <laughs> Throwing the empties out the open back door. Um, yeah, it was just chaos and mayhem. And that bloody, uh, the Briggs, it's a wonder we didn't get locked up. Well, you need to um, listen to Fraser's podcast episodes where he talks about the TOC and uh, the uh, the camper van that they had and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah. You know what I love about this hobby and 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 anybody that gets involved in something, the stories that you can look back on, it's all, it literally it sounds like I'm sort of preaching from the, the lectern now, but I believe that life is about just creating stories. And you know, so many guests like you did, Phil, say to me, "You must be scraping the barrel. Why do you want to have a chat with me?" And my theory is, everyone has a story, and it doesn't matter what you've done in error modeling. Everybody's got a story. It doesn't matter, you know, you won the competition or not. Everyone has a story, and uh, and I think those stories mean a lot to 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 me and to 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 individuals as well. So uh, we're just making. Fraser and I hosted the. Uh, we were the MCs at the Coolum uh, Masters. Oh yes, doing yes. The and all that sort of stuff, and it was chaos and mayhem. Yeah, <laughs> he's just a funny, funny man. Those Kiwis are funny, but whenever we have a comp now, they always I normally have an Airbnb somewhere near where we're staying. And they came up, come over for a barbecue trip. They're normally there two or three days later. Hmm. And uh, the, the fridge is empty. Uh, there's plenty of bloody bones and uh, plastic plates lying around the place. And we 
can hardly talk because we've laughed and carried on so much for the period of days. Yeah. Uh, it's good times. You know, it's, it's, this is why I say that it's great to go to flying events, get out of your day-to-day oh, flying yeah. club environment and go to a competition or a fun fly event and it just takes on – like I, was, uh, I said to a friend today, um, you know, you're going to come to this event. And, you know, and, he, and he said, oh, I don't know, I'll only come for a day. I said, day? I said, it's an event. You've got to turn up. You know, you got to, you know, just sit there and we'll all just – hang around with each other and pick on each other. That's what men do. We pick on each other and we have a Absolutely. laugh at, at each other's expense kind of thing. So that's what that's what it's all about. It's not necessarily about the flying. Like I'm glad to go to an event and not fly. I'll take photographs, shoot a video, that kind of stuff, but I'm just there to just immerse myself in it and say good day to the you know, people that you don't normally see kind of thing. One of the best things that happened in recent times um, was the 70th and 71st Nationals that were held at West Wyalong where all the various disciplines uh, got together. And we were fortunate that S3A flew uh, fairly early. And um, it was, uh, they had control line, three flight helicopters, pylon racing, it was all there. And I went for the whole, I think it was eight or 10 days, I went for every minute and went around to all of them. I'd never seen control line speed before, it was awesome. Free flight with those lunatics launching these things that are screaming motors in the sky, it was awesome. Control on combat was off the chart. It was just, and it was an era modeling Nirvana. It was just the best thing. And the fact that we've slipped away from that again is a bit disappointing, but uh, hopefully the powers that could be can get it all back together because it was just so much bloody fun. I just think we've got a challenge with a shifting society. People just don't want to leave their homes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People don't want to travel. And, and it, it, there's, so many different hobbies that are struggling from that. That, you know, um, I was talking to a guy today that works for a company that makes stand-up jet skis, right? Australian company called yep. Crash, Crash Industries. Lovely guy. He's going to be neighbours with me up at my holiday house. We found out, so that was that was good, good connection. But there's been a decline in people wanting to to ride these stand-up jet skis because it's a bit like 3D flying. It's not something you sit down on the like on a boat and off you go and anybody can do it. You have to practice a little bit um, kind of thing. They're like freestyle jet skis. You can do backflips and all that kind of stuff on them. And he, they've noticed the decline in interest in them. Fortunately, they've expanded into overseas markets as well. But I think that people are less inclined to actually – get involved in things that take up time and a bit of effort. So we make a bit of an effort just to be able to turn up to the flying club to fly. Um, well, have a look at golf courses. Yes. You know, 80 golf courses closed around Australia uh, prior to COVID. Yeah. Um, because today's society wants things far quicker than a four or five-hour game of golf. Yeah, that's true. And they are. They're talking a lot about different styles of golf and that kind of thing. But, and you know, it's it, it, okay. We get disappointed about it, but it's the reality. My kids yep. are growing up in a different era than what we were grow- growing up in because we didn't have the internet. That my, my yeah. biggest, my and there are plenty of parents out there can attest to this. My my kids' biggest issue in life is the speed of the internet. <laughs> and if there's no internet, and of course I roll around the floor going, "No internet! What are we gonna?" We had a blackout in our house yesterday, right? And the kids are like, "What do we do now?" I said, "We sit <laughs> and we do nothing." And uh, the old neighbour, the old neighbour came across the road, this elderly lady, and and she was having sitting down with us during the blackout. And I said to her, "Can you tell my kids what did you used to do back in the uh, in the forties and stuff when you were a kid? You know, like 
Well, how did you keep yourself occupied without the internet? But it's just it, it is it is a consequence of, of of where society's at, and I think putting those big events on just becomes harder and harder. And not only like putting them on means people have to make an effort, and it's hard to find the volunteers because everybody's rushing around like Edward Strooks nowadays for some reason. Yeah, absolutely. We've got uh, the Australian team trials coming up. Uh, the first one is the APA Championships, which will be conducted in um, Albury in March. Um, you know, there are 40 seats available, and it's not till March, so we've still got you know five or six weeks to go. And well, currently, 35 of those seats are taken. So we're actually very pleased about that. I, I, I would assume the committee's very happy. Um, so that side it's going well. I know Queensland's going very well in F3A. Uh, the crew up there are driving it very hard. You know, Peter Panisi and co up there are doing a wonderful job. So there's hope. It's interesting, actually, when we when you talk about doom and gloom, but in the aerobatics competition scene, whether it be iMac or, or Patton, we're pretty good at the moment. Like, we're pretty – Patton's always been pretty good down here in Victoria. iMac had a massive slump. We've got down to, like, three Victorian participants. Is that right? But now it's booming and it, and it spreads like wildfire that – you know, yeah. and in order to, Michael Andrusik did an excellent yeah, yeah. job. He, yeah, he's he's done an awesome job of pushing uh, the uh, IMAT. Yep. You know what it was? Come try day. Come and have a try. Come and see it. Come and experience it. Oh, you really liked it, and your mate really liked it, and now both of you are going to do it, and you told your other mate, and now he's coming to join in, and now we're fully loaded. Awesome. You know, it's this. He's done a stellar job, that fella. Yeah. I keep on saying the MAAA, come try days. Advertise. And come try day. Tim Nolan, I'm going to say it again. Advertise the hobby and advertise a come try day. Incentivize the clubs to run come try days and we'll build this hobby again because you know what it is, Phil. We don't need 3,000 people to come. We just need maybe an extra 400 or 500 to make a decent difference. Like we're not trying to convert. <laughs> it's it's only a small percentage of the Australian population that we really need to get involved, right? So it's let's not try to convert the world here. We don't need to do that. We just need to, you know, a couple of thousand extra would be good. Well, fortunately, I think um, it'll, it'll outlive me. So I'm more than happy with that, that uh, I'm happy to fly F3A for as long as I possibly can. I said, as I said, I went to uh, the World Champs in 2019 and uh, it was just an awesome event. And the Australian team were close. Uh, we all got along like a house on fire. And we had an absolute ball. And the guys did a cracking good job. We finished 15th in the world. You know, there's, uh, I think there's 70 members of the APA. And we finished 15th in the world. They've got uh, competitions in Europe that are bigger than our whole membership. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. That is true. We always punch above our weight, though, we Australians. Absolutely. We do pretty good. We rise to the occasion. You know? Yeah. So, so your plan now with your pattern flying is is what? Just continue to keep on competing and progressing? Do it for as long as I possibly can. And there's no sign of it actually ebbing at the moment, so that's a plus. Um, I did have some troubles uh, getting to this current program, this F program. It's very difficult. Russell Edwards, um, team member, Australian team member from the last World Champs, last two World Champs, um, broke it down into sections and we spent eight days practicing it. So, um, and with Artura, it was a blow. Um, it's just, it's just great. And it gives you a sense of purpose. I was out flying it today out at Belconnen. Um, yeah, life's good. I'm a bloody lucky bugger. Yeah, no, you're making the most of it as well, which is good to see. So how often are you getting flying now? <laughs> um, it ebbs and flows. Um, yeah, son got married, all those sorts of things. We can always come up with an excuse not to go flying. But now as we come up towards the APA champs, I want to fly 
probably three or four times uh, a week, and certainly to get into this uh, this F schedule. Um, and then we've got a week before the APA champs in Albury. We're actually booked in there for the whole week to get a week of practice just before that at the flying field. Um, and I think there's 20 odd comps across Australia this year before we get to uh, the Masters, which will be in Casino in New South Wales in September. Um, and we booked for a week before that to fly comp, you know, to practice up there. Um, you bloody beauty, how lucky are we? Yeah, yeah. Now, you, you mentioned building earlier. Do you, <laughs> do you like building or are you, are you a bit like I me? I used that... to like building. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a, I've had poor building skills. Uh, I had poor building skills. I had a motorbike preen probably 2017, 18. I broke my uh, right hand. I got plates in my right hand. So that comes as a pretty good excuse not to do any building now. So Jason Arnold, uh, Precision Aero Products, he builds uh, the planes that I fly. You know, he sets sets them up with lasers and all that sort of stuff. The incident is set to 0.4 degree positive on the main wing. Mate, I couldn't have done that in the month of Sundays. No. I couldn't have done it to save my life. And he, he does a wonderful product. Um, so, you know, I'm very fortunate at, at, at that area too. I admire those people that have got their building skills. Oh. Some of the scale guys, I just, it just fascinates me. They're, they're, they're like artists. I, I, you know, I just, I, I don't have it in my fingers. Absolutely. He's, he wasn't happy with the, uh, the mounting plates for the ailerons. And so he drew some up, printed them, uh, and then cut them out in the CNC machine. And uh, stuck him in the wind, he gained an ounce and a half, took an ounce and a half off the overall weight, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, the guys are good. He's, you know, sort of a, the support side of F3A because he brings in the models, the drives, the batteries, the little things that we need, the, the switches. Um, yeah, it's, those guys are just bloody awesome. We're extremely lucky to have them. Yeah, we know. and you know what? I think it's going to become more common too. As, you know, the numbers sort of decline, it's hard for the shops. I was at a hobby store the other day with my son. He wanted to buy a few things and uh, and I was looking around going, look, there's plenty of stuff for RC cars, but there, there ain't much here for planes at all. It was a bit of building supplies. I must say they'd have a good, good selection of bolster and um, a few bits and bobs like that. But uh, no, I couldn't see the Dubro wall, you know, where you used to see the Dubro wall full of uh, bits and Enjoy pieces. that. We don't, have, we don't have a hobby shop in the ACT. 450,000 people, yeah. we don't have a hobby shop. Well, We've got two in, in Albury. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was... Um, yeah, driving out to the hobby store and talking to my son in the car about that, saying, you know, there's not many stores left. Um, you know, we've got, we're, we're lucky we've got a few. We've still got RC World, Metro Hobbies here. Um, beyond that, you know, RAB Hobbies a little bit. There's, there's really not much left. And then, of course, we've got the good guys up at Albury, Albury RC that um, keep on doing it. And that's one good thing about the internet, though. We can still buy stuff online and get it get it delivered, even though do, ac- accessing stock at the moment and delivery is not good at all. If you want anything in a hurry, well, uh, you, you're not going to get it. But um, but oh well, I did. Uh, we do have like um some specialists as well. I was in seeing um Dave Prattley from Dave's Toys for Big Boys. Um, do you want me to tell you a stupid story of uh, how stupid I am, Phil? You can't be probably being much dumber than me, but go on. No, no, I think I take the cake and you know, ate it as well. I went flying my F5J glider for the first time, big competition carbon fiber thing that I bought uh, during the COVID period or just pre COVID or something, and then couldn't fly it and uh, go out to uh, do the maiden launch by myself and um, didn't hold my hand up high enough because really, really long fuselage like the tail's like a kilometer behind. Yeah, I know the ones, yeah, yeah. So you can imagine me release. 
silence and then hit myself in the back of the head with the tailplane. Oh, and uh, that cracked the fiber, the, the carbon fiber on the back of the plane. And uh, oh, no. it was another little crack in the fuselage, first flight. And I'm thinking, what an idiot. And that was a typical example. And everyone learn from my stupidity. Stop, think, then act. Don't just grab and do. I grabbed and mm. went. And I should have stopped and went, okay. And I think it was that, you know, that maiden flight, bit of, you know, nerves kind of thing. Um, but so anyway, I went to see Dave Prattley and Dave specializes in um, competition gliders, you know, the carbon fiber molded gliders and things like that. We need someone like that because without him, who else is going to do it? Absolutely. That's why we've got, you know, Jason Arnold in uh, New South Wales, Mark Hu up in uh, Queensland, and David McFarlane still brings stuff in in Wollongong. But that's just about it. That's about it for Australia. So, you know, we're, uh, we need to ensure that we support our local people. Yeah, yeah, no, I do. I'm, I'm a big believer, big believer of that. So, yeah, big thanks to all those people that are, are doing their best. And, and even oh, I love to see this new um, kit building scene, laser cutters, you know, this little boutique yeah. kind of stuff, you know, like Scalera products and um, Hulk RC. Um, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of them that are that are, that are doing some stuff, which is um, really good. So always happy to support those kind of people because um, well, even Brian Simpson over in the West, you know, yes, I yeah, think true. he's right verified. He printed out a Kitty Hawk kit. Well, I bought that, not a problem. Yeah, old control on. Yeah, no, I think um, yeah, big thank you to all those kind of guys. And now, what does your hanger currently look like? You said you got a lot of stuff. So oh god. Um, I've just recently sold a couple of scale planes that I haven't, uh, F6F Bearcat and a Hurricane, because I'm just not going to fly them because I'm just a, I'm a, I'm an F3A bloke. That's the way it is. Um, I've got Aaron Gahl's World Championship planes on the roof of uh, hanging upside down in my shed. Um, I've still got, as I said, I've still got Pete Goldsmith's Lotus uh, and Carrera. Um, I've got two CK Aero. Um, Alchemy Pros with um, Contra Drives and I've got the biplane, Jason's currently building finishing off a biplane for me, the CKRO uh, Alchemy biplane um, so everything's F3A oriented mm. See, that I've got to... enough servos to start my own service, servo business <laughs> yeah, I've got um, a lot of spare receivers lying around for some reason I'll be sort of downscaling a few kids I'm getting you know, these receivers thinking what am I going to do with all these but um, that, that shift to biplane seemed to be really popular at the moment and they're, they're contra-rotating uh, motors as well. Well, the contras, when I first when I came back to flying about four and a half, five years ago, uh, I actually went to Albury to go and watch an F3A competition to see whether or not I thought I could still do it. And the thing that was the most amazing was the electrics, how slowly they were coming down the vertical downline mm. because the mm. speed controllers were being dialed to below the actual airspeed, so it was actually acting as a brake. And it was like they had a parachute on the back of them. And it's it's just been a wonderful world of discovery again. And contra-rotating props, no talk, mate. Mm. You can't believe how good it is to fly without talk. You've got no idea how much you use your rudder because of talk. When you don't have talk, it, the plane flies itself far easier. Actually, the biggest problem my plane has got is the idiot on the box that keeps interfering with it. I've got that problem as well. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm looking for that button that's just, you know I do believe that at some time in the future we'll be going to flying fields and people will be programming flights into their models and they'll just sit there and go okay run press enter plane takes off flies the F3A sequence lands and you'll be judged on your computer programming skills <laughs> rather than your actual flying abilities well that's it I'm officially suicidal if that's the case 
And now, um, when it comes to bucket list models, are there any models that you you wish to have? You know, you said you had a few scale models and that kind of thing, but is there anything that you, you've got your eye on that you'd love to have? No, not really. I'm in the fortunate situation now um, that I can probably get what I want. Um, and I've got them. I've got the F3A planes. Um, I've got a um, trailer being built by Mark Fort down in uh, Victoria, the same one as Norm's, yeah. Norm Morris's, and he's got it all sorted out. He's going to do this and he's going to do that. He's got a, He bought the wheels. He's bought the box for the batteries. Uh, mm. It's all sussed out. He'll, he'll sort it out. Now, there's a human dynamo, the nuclear-powered geriatric. Oh, um, Norm. Oh, unbelievable. Storm I went Norm. to the worlds with him. And he is indefatigable. I've never oh, yeah. seen anything like no, it. No, he is. I saw him the other day, and he's he's a very consistent person, isn't he? When you see him, you know what you're going to get. Because he's flat out all the time. Yeah, he's probably got ADD. But I love that. I'd love to have ADD. Oh. Well, my wife thinks I've got ADD, and I'm proud of that if I do have it. But, um, yeah, no, I saw him last weekend. I saw Marco Ford as, as well last weekend. There you go. He's been on the podcast, well, trailer there. guy. I was down here, and I was great. Well, he's building my uh, trailer, and Norm's going to finish it all off for me because – you know, I've got the building skills of a dead gnat and Norm's got it all under control. When we were at the Worlds in Italy in, in 2019, uh, Norm and I went together and we were up um, like quarter past six. So that the first flights would start at eight o'clock and we'd be there for the first flights from 8am and when the last flight started at 10 to 8pm. Um, and we saw every single thing that we could possibly see. And there sometimes I thought, oh, I could take it a bit easier. I could go and have a kit. Not Norm. He was going a million miles an hour the whole time and he knew everyone. Mm. Everyone from every country, they all knew Norm. It was just, uh, it was just, he is just something special. And uh, he's been very supportive of me since uh, since I've returned. And I didn't know him beforehand. So I've been very lucky there. He, you know, I think he's that kind of guy. And he, well, we, I have had him on the podcast, as you know, because you listened to his episode. But he, um, yeah, he's he's very supportive of people in the pattern scene, especially, you know, and, and elsewhere. He does a lot of good at um, Flying yeah. Club that I'm a member of. And um, so, yeah, we need. We need to thank Norm more, I think, because uh, he's, he's put a lot of time into people. I've got to serve him up as well. He's also looking after the uh, the old grannies all the way around the place. He, he's always looking after someone's plumbing, you know. Yes. Poor old Mrs. Jones up the road, her plumbing's yeah. no good, so I've been out there sorting it out, you know. Yeah. Oh, you're a disgusting person talking like that. You know, really. <laughs> this is true. That is true. Well, there's always a question that I always end up on. And it's a question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer to. And it's going to be an interesting one to see how you answer that, this question. That is, what has been your favourite model? I've listened to some in the past and people said they nearly came up with four or five. Yeah, Norm created new categories, I think. He did. Yeah. Um, I've got to come up with two. Uh, the first model I ever built was the, the Mustang, as I mentioned earlier, it was the Aeroflight Mustang train. looked nothing like a Mustang. Uh, it was just a box thing and I painted it with house paint so that the nitro fuel ripped the house paint off, but I loved that thing dearly. And incredibly, it survived for a very long period of time with that uh, Cox 09 motor. So that was a cracker. And then the one that I still have is uh, Pete Goldsmith's Carrera with the OS120 supercharged on it, because that was the first one that I competed with uh, internationally. And uh, it was something special. And Waldo was very, very good at helping me sort it out to the way I flew it. And even to this day, I still have communications with him about uh, about plane setup, even though he's in the States, um, which probably says a lot about aeromodelling. So those are the two. I'll, I'll keep it to just the two. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Phil. I said the one, but you, you, you like – it's very consistent when I ask this question. And 
you know, I don't know what to do in 2022. You know, I keep saying the number one and everyone gives me one, two, and three, creates new categories and gives me one, two, and three in each category. It's, you know, I feel sorry for a lot of aero modelers' wives, you know. Like you ask a simple question, like give me your number one, and you get, well, there's this and this. It's like, well, which one's one? Well, speaking of aero modelers' wives, can I give a shout-out before you, uh, we hang up? What, to my um, wife? Not your wife. Yeah. Um, I mentioned Alf Pye earlier. It was one of the saddest things. I didn't hear about his passings. I was in the UAE at the time, and I didn't hear about it, his passing until some years, or still some months after it had occurred. And uh, one of the good things about aero modelling, it's a pretty tight community. And uh, after getting back into uh, flying aerobatics, I was lucky enough to catch up with uh, Alf's w- widow, Benita. And uh, I see her every time I go through Gunnedah, going up to Queensland uh, or water, whatever. And uh, Alf's mum, uh, Grace Law there in uh, Coonabarabran. And um, they're all good people. You know, they're all very positive And despite the hardships they've had in their lives, they're just bloody good people. So a shout out to Benita and uh, her wonderful family and Elf's daughter, Bianca. Um, aeromodelling is a great thing, you know. There's some great people in it. And one of the best things about coming back to it is there's less, less politics now than there used to be. Really? Because some people say there's more, but... Uh, but yeah. I enjoy it more now than I've ever done at any stage in my life, and so I feel very, very privileged. Well, you, I can feel that that enthusiasm that you have for aeromodelling. And, you know, like, you remember what you said to me at the start? Why do you want to talk to me? I think that anybody listening to this podcast will say, well, I'm glad we did have you on to listen to your story <laughs> because uh, we, we, learned, we learned a lot and uh, you, you have a unique story to tell. Uh, both, you know, your whole life's been quite quite unique and, and different to a lot of people, really, and the opportunities that you've had throughout your life. So, Phil, uh, it's been my pleasure to, to get to know you and have you on the podcast. May see you around the traps Uh because you do travel around, so but all the best in the future, and thanks for joining me. It's been my absolute pleasure, Andrew. Thank you very much indeed. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, another episode of the Flat Out RC done and dusted. The first one back. I think it's episode 86. We're powering towards 100 episodes, which is a bit of a milestone for me. Uh, so we will keep on rolling with it. Uh, big thank you to Phil. Uh, really enjoyed that chat. Uh, as I always say, I love talking to people about uh, their, their story in aero modelling. And um, often some people say to me when I invite them, oh, well, I've got nothing to say everybody has a story in aero modeling and it's all interesting so uh if i tap you on the shoulder invite you on don't be daunted uh and if you want to if you want to come on to the podcast and you think you'd like to share your story tell me i'm always looking for guests anywhere around the world if you want to come on the podcast send me a message get on the flatoutrc.com.au website send me a message or on facebook or on instagram doesn't matter if you want to come on just yell out and uh, we'll, we'll, we can make that happen. So there you have it. It's an open invite. It's good to be back. I enjoyed my break, but it's good to be back talking aero modeling. It's one of those experiences that every week I can just get lost in aero modeling by having a chat with somebody. Uh, and we can all do that by listening to the podcast. So thank you for joining me once again. Have a great week. And I will be here again and I will meet you here online next week. Thanks a lot. <laughs>